It's always a privilege to uh, be able to be here with you, uh, whether you're here on our Canandaigua campus, part of our online campus, or of course our Hopewell campus. It's a, it is a, a great opportunity we get week after week to be able to, to gather together, uh, whether here on campus or in our homes or at the Hopewell campus, and to be able to worship the Lord in song, uh, to be able to worship the Lord in fellowship, and also to be able to worship the Lord as we look at his word together. Uh, we're in the midst of a series we're calling Ignite, and we're looking at events that occurred over 2,000 years ago uh, that ignited a movement that has literally changed the world. We've looked at the Passion Week of Christ, his, his death on the cross, his resurrection. We've looked at his appearance to his disciples in the Great Commission. And this week, we're going to look at Christ's ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit. This expectancy uh, that all of heaven uh, looked and gazed upon, waiting for it to occur, this this amazing birth of a child and the work of Christ and the continuing work of Christ in and through us as his followers. This word expectancy is a, is a pretty powerful word. I, I was thinking of it and I thought, you know, of, of when each of my three children were born. Any parents out there? Dad, you'll, you'll really get into this. For us, it was a little different, right? Uh, we knew our wives were pregnant, but we had to take them at their word. And then they began to show and then we waited for nine months, and, and, and for all, it was the expectancy. I can only speak as a father. That's all I've ever been. But I can remember just waiting for the children to be born. And then grandparents. Any grandparents out there? You might have heard I'm a grandparent. Uh, maybe you haven't. If you haven't, come up to me. I'd love to tell you about it. Uh, but I remember in the waiting room that expectancy uh, of the birth of my first grandchild, and, and when she was born, uh, being told that I could go down to the room and my wife was already in there, but those who were in the waiting room with me said I literally ran. And if you know anything about me, that's a miracle in of itself. Literally ran. And, and I can remember waiting just by the phone as my grandson was being born. And just that expectancy, that expectancy. And heaven looked down with this expected impact of, the, of Christ coming into the world, offering us salvation and, and, and power through his spirit and dwelling as believers. And, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. Let's begin by looking at Christ's final words to his disciples. Acts 1, 8 through 11. Jesus had just had a brief conversation with his disciples before this, where they ask about when is his kingdom going to be established in the way that they sort of perceived his kingdom was going to come. They, they saw the kingdom that Christ was going to establish being that of uh, much uh, similar to that of David, and Jesus takes them somewhere a little different, Acts 1, 8 through 11. Jesus says, but you'll receive, the, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And that while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by him in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? I got to pause there for a minute because I've often laughed at the fact that angels, usually when they appear, the first thing they say is, don't be afraid, which seems to be ridiculous because if something popped out of nothing, if you're not afraid, there's probably something wrong with you. The second uh, sort of angelic proclamation, if you will, but it's always made me laugh, is here's Jesus ascending into heaven. They're watching this. And they ask the angels, what are you looking at? What would you be looking at? I mean, can you imagine being there? So the angels say to him, why are you looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven 
will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. And Jesus, what? He announces the coming of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus explains, in contrast to John's baptism, and by the way, we as followers of Christ are commanded to be baptized, water baptism. But that water baptism is simply an outward sign of an inward work. We're not saved through baptism, right, church? It's not, uh, baptism isn't a matter of salvation. It's a matter of obedience, right? It's an outward sign of an inward work. But the baptism of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, is different because it brings something. It brings purity and power. So water baptism is an outward sign of an inward work. It's a way of saying, yes, I've, I've said yes to Jesus. I understand I belong to God in his church. But this baptism of the Holy Spirit brings us purity and power. Remember, the disciples were expectant of this political kingdom like that of David. And I find it interesting because Jesus doesn't rebuke them nor deny that such a kingdom will come in the future. But rather what he does is he diverts them from the futile speculation over something which is entirely in the Father's authority. In other words, when these things happen, God will, will bring them about. It's the same with the study of prophecy. We should know the prophecies, but if you think you totally understand the prophecies that are yet to come, you fool yourself because they're totally in the hands of God. Prophecy is in Scripture to let us know that God is true to his word. He has things under control. And Jesus diverts them away from speculating when the future kingdom will come to something that they need to do, and it's their responsibility. What? Jesus says the disciples' responsibility was to prepare for the bestowment of this inner power of God for witnessing. And the message that they will give witness to is about Jesus. And we identify with the disciples that these words that Jesus spoke to them, he speaks to us as well, that we are to what? Know God and make him known, that we're to make disciples. And this was the last that they would ever see Christ this side of paradise. In fact, they're left alone until the great helper, the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, will come and come upon them in a mighty way. So as Jesus descended, two men stood by in white apparel, and the astonished disciples were told that, that just as they saw Jesus ushered up into heaven, that's how he will return. And really, they're offering the disciples hope. For it's this promise of Christ's return that sustains the hope of believers to this day. Isn't it good news that Jesus Christ is going to return? That this world isn't all that there is but there's life everlasting, that that paradise there, that deep down in our soul we crave is awaiting us, but that the work of preparing us for that paradise and bringing a piece of that paradise on earth starts today. It's important to note that the events occurring on the day of Pentecost were a necessary extension of the ministry of Jesus. And it's spoken of so infrequently that I think many times in the church we miss this, that this is a very important part of Jesus's ministry. We understand that the cross, the cross brings us cleansing of sin, that Jesus died in our stead, and then when we receive him as Savior and Lord, we're made right with God. The resurrection, confirming Christ's cleansing work and prefiguring our future resurrection, what great news that is. The ascension, marking Christ's departure until his bodily return. But then the sending, bestowing what we need to be who we were designed to be. Think about that. This work of sanctification we talk about, what's that mean? It means becoming like Jesus. How like Jesus? Not like we don't become God, but we become like Jesus, what? In his character and his love and his purpose and his priorities. This is 
something that's continuing the life of the believer because of the work of the Holy Spirit. And also we're able to do what he's commanded us to do, which is ministry, make disciples, share his message and his love with others. And so let's look at this coming of the Holy Spirit. By the way, this power that's spoken of in Scripture, uh, that word power that we get, uh, we get our word power from comes from the Greek word that we get our word dynamite from. So think about that. The power isn't small power, it's dynamite power that Scripture speaks of. Acts 2, 1 through 4. I would actually say it's nuclear power, but we don't have time to go into all that. Acts 2, 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all gathered in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The signs of Pentecost indicate a great redemptive event. Something here quite remarkable is occurring. We see a rushing wind like the noise from heaven, this rushing wind, and in Scripture, this idea of wind over and over again is, is talking about God's presence, that God's presence is uniquely doing something in this upper room. The tongues of fire resting on, on each of them in the upper room represents what the purifying fire of God, God's holiness resting upon them. Don't miss this. The reason we're able to become like Jesus, the reason that that we're able to not be conformed to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind is because of Christ's Spirit's work in the life of a believer. It's not because any of us in this room are able to work harder than the next person. It's because some of us in this room have surrendered harder than the next person. You catch that? It's the Spirit working in us as we cooperate, melt me, mold me, fill me, use me. And then they began speaking in languages not learned. And these languages were known to the hearers used to reach what the nations that are present there outside of this occurrence. In short, in short the signs of Pentecost pointed to this filling of the Holy Spirit. And I like how what E. Stanley Jones writes. He says, there are four pillars upon which Christ's gospel rests. Four pillars which Christ's gospel rests. His life, his cross, his resurrection, and his coming into the lives of men at Pentecost. His coming into the lives of his followers. What is the significance of, these, of Pentecost? I mean, why the day of Pentecost? Why did, why did the Lord choose this particular day to do this particular work? Well, let's give some background. If you like history, you'll like it. If not, put up with it. Context. Pentecost was a divinely prescribed Old Testament festival. It was seven full weeks after Passover, also known as the Feast, uh, the Feast of Weeks. And so it's 50 days, therefore Pentecost, right? Uh, the purpose was to give thanks to God for the harvest. I want you to think about that for a minute. God picks this harvest day festival in order for the Holy Spirit to come upon people. I believe God does all things for a reason, don't you? But what is the reason? Why, what is the significance of the Spirit's arrival at the time of an agricultural festival? Note that Peter's Old Testament uh, explaining uh, this, to this worldwide audience what has been happening. And so if we go to Acts 2, 16 through 17, we, we realize that people are seeing the Spirit of God work in the lives of the believers in this upper room. It's, it's spreading outside the upper room. Some are accusing them of being drunk. Can you imagine? Because there's just something they can't explain 
And, and of course, they are sort of drunk. They're drunk with the Holy Spirit. This, this new power is residing within them. And Peter gives an explanation. Look at Acts 2, 16 through 17. He says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. I don't think that's an, a statement of the old men sleeping more than the younger men, but, but there's something maybe there. What does this quote from Joel 2, 28 through 32, have to do with agriculture? It, it just seems like a crazy statement. It's an agricultural festival. It's, it's tied into what's being spoken of here in Joel. And Joel says nothing about wheat and barley and those type of things. No, no, no. He's talking about the, the work of God in the life of a person. So let's go back to history and context again. The prophet Joel spoke to Israel following a plague of locusts that brought a, a tremendous drought. I mean, animals were dying in this time because they couldn't find food and, and people were dying because they couldn't do the same. And so Joel, speaking for God, held out hope. And he says what? If the people would gather in a sacred assembly and repent, so there's an issue here, sin in, in, in the people of God. If they would gather together as an assembly and repent, then God would restore a harvest to Israel. And here's the point. When God poured out the Holy Spirit upon the waiting disciples, it was like when God poured out rain upon a parched Israel. Think about that for a minute. Have you ever been in a time of great need? Maybe it was financial. Maybe it was emotional. For all of us at one time, it was spiritual, right? And our soul was in a drought. And we weren't sure where the hope came from. We weren't sure how it was going to be answered, and then it was answered. And this overwhelming feeling of just being blessed. Maybe it even happened before you were a believer, and you weren't able to express really what God had done for you, but you knew something remarkable was happening in that moment. That you were being fed in a way that, that you never anticipated would happen. Well, for Israel, back when Joel spoke to them, it was in the, in the way of rain. Can you imagine drought in an agricultural society where you're not able to bust things and truck things in from all over the world, that they were dependent upon what was right outside their door, and they saw nothing. Then the rain started coming, and things started growing, and life was, was sustained. In the very same way, the, the disciples, when Jesus left, were alone. They had this great task before them, become like Jesus and share the message with others so they could be saved and come like Jesus too, that there would be this worldwide mission that people would be transformed by, by, by Christ. But, but in that time when Jesus ascended to when the Holy Spirit descended, they, they were alone. Their, their souls were longing for something that they desperately needed. And when the Holy Spirit came upon them, it was like a, it was like a rain upon a drought land. And their souls began to well up, and power began to fill them. It's amazing. And the day of Joel, the sacred assembly, was for all the people. Notice who was there at Pentecost, Acts 2.5. Luke wants us to understand this. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Every, from the known world, we'll say. They're there, and they're, they're experiencing this, and 
It's noteworthy that Peter's sermon based on Joel 2, 28 through 32 was not even about the spirit. Well, what is it about? Look at Acts 2, 22 through 23, verse 36. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So the Spirit comes upon them, and they don't immediately begin to talk about the Spirit of God. They talk about the Savior coming to Jesus. Peter explained that those who repent and believe in Christ, the salvation of God, down later he says, but they'll immediately receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But the Spirit's indwelling presence is is an essential feature of the one promise. Let's not miss this. That when we come to Christ, the very Spirit of God enters into us. He makes us his home. You say, how do you know? We'll look at Acts 2, 38 through 39. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord, our our God, calls to himself. So the promise is that those who come to Christ for salvation will receive the Spirit of God, who brings what? The power of God, the peace of God, his comfort, his directing, his transforming power in our life. Paul described it this way, Galatians 3, 13 through 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Interesting. This promise that was given to Abraham so many years earlier, It is not just for a chosen people in the sense of Israel, but for a chosen people in the sense of Christ's church. That anyone, anyone who receives Christ as Savior and Lord receives the very spirit of Christ in their life to live the life that he's called us to live, to be who he's called us to be and live the way he's called us to live. Look at it this way. When was the beginning for Peter? I mean, really think about it. When, when you speak, think of Peter's spiritual journey, you can go back and you can say, well, maybe the beginning was when Jesus called Peter to be his disciple. That must have been a pretty cool moment, huh? Maybe it was when Peter confessed Christ to be the son of the living God. You remember, he says, who, who, do, you, who do they say I am? And given all these, he said, who do you say I am? And Peter, being the most vocal of the disciples, just spits it out. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you're right. What was it when Jesus died for Peter's sins? Maybe it was when Jesus commissioned Peter to go into all the world, or when he said to him, Peter, feed my sheep. It's interesting. Peter gives us his beginning moment. He's going to give a report of what Christ has done in the life of a family of a man named Cornelius. I don't have time to get into the whole story. It's recorded there in Acts. It's worth a read or two. Uh, God prepares Peter in a very unique way for an invitation to Cornelius' household. He's invited and he goes. And you have to understand, up to this point in Peter's life, 
when, when Jesus said, I have come for the whole world, and Jesus had ascended several years before this, Peter thought he meant whole world, meaning all the Jews in the world. He said, well, how did he misunderstand that? I have no idea, but I know I misunderstand things daily, so I'm not going to be too hard on him. But Jesus has said in several years, he believes when Christ says to the whole world, but he literally means Jews in the whole world, the diaspora. And Christ, through this divine moment, this divine invitation, takes him to Cornelius' house, this Gentile, and this Gentile comes to faith, his household comes to faith, and the Holy Spirit sort of comes upon them in a similar way that it came upon them in the upper room. It's not, by the way, descriptive. That's not the way the Holy Spirit comes upon every believer. It's prescriptive. It's giving an eye. It's descriptive, not prescriptive. It's, in other words, it's not the way the Holy Spirit comes upon every believer. It was a way for Peter to understand, oh my goodness, the gospel is literally for everyone. When Jesus said all, he meant, yeah, imagine that. And he comes back, and this is his report, Acts eleven fifteen. And I began to speak, this is what happened in Cornelius' household, and I began to speak, and the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. So when Peter is going to point out what the beginning is, for them, it's this day of Pentecost. Now for us, when is the beginning? It's when we come to Christ, because when we come to Christ, that's our personal Pentecost. That's when the Spirit enters into our life. Now, why do the scriptures and I mean, what do I mean by beginning? Again, the beginning I speak of, and so too does God's word, is being made right with God. That's justification. That means when Jesus died for us, when we receive him as Savior and Lord, we're made right with God. That's a work that's been done in a believer's life. But also, being filled with the Spirit so we can be like Christ, sanctification, that's a work that's continuing to happen in a believer's life where we become like Christ again in what? Character, love, purpose, and priorities. And Jesus, Jesus, when he ascended, said to the disciples, and this is how it will be. And this is how it is. Just consider what happened at Pentecost. From the day of Pentecost, God inaugurated his new people, the church. He literally set a movement ablaze. The group huddled in the upper room numbered 120. Peter gives his first message, 3,000 people come to Christ. That's remarkable. How many of you think that? He preaches again, and 5,000 people come to Christ. There is an estimated over 3.2 billion Christians on planet Earth today. 3.2 billion Christians. 120 people, upper room, 3.2 billion Christians. That's what the Spirit of God does in the life of believers. He transforms them. He works in and through them in remarkable ways. I love how Luke describes the churches, Christ's redemptive movement growing in Acts 5.14. He says, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And what's the point then? Well, what's the big idea of the scriptures that we've been looking at this morning? Well, the meaning of Pentecost is God's fulfilled promise to equip his church with the power of his spirit so that they can glorify him by knowing him and making him known. That, that, that the meaning of Pentecost is God's fulfilled promise to equip his church with the power of his spirit so that they can glorify him by knowing him and making him known. I mean, look at Pentecost. Look at it. At Pentecost, a movement was set ablaze to glorify God among the nations. 3.2 billion and counting. 
At Pentecost, the necessary power for fulfilling God's plan to know him and make him known is given to every believer, this gift of the Holy Spirit. And so I ask you this morning, have you had your beginning? Have you had your beginning? As a Christian, you were filled with the Spirit once you received Christ, but catch this, this is so important. However, this does not mean that believers by faith walk in the Spirit. Many people have taught that there's a second work that needs to happen once you're saved in order to be filled with the Spirit. I'm here to tell you, I don't see any biblical evidence of that anywhere. But I do know this. There's a second acknowledgement many a believer comes to that allows for the work of the Spirit to be activated in their life. There's a difference there. Uh, What do I mean? That most of us, when we come to Jesus, we receive him as Savior and Lord, but if we're to be honest, we receive him as Savior. We heard the gospel. We heard about heaven and hell. It didn't take much intellectual prowess to realize one was better than the other. A lot better, church. We understood where we were, what we needed. The Spirit of God drew us to Christ, and we received him. But then something happened. We began to walk and realize, I don't feel really all that changed. Were you there? Like you knew you were in Christ, but you still had the same thoughts. You felt maybe a little worse than you did before. Maybe even said the same things. You may have felt a little worse than you did before because now the Spirit's convicting you. What a gift, and wow, sometimes holy ouch, right? And then you realized, oh, wait a minute. Christ isn't just my Savior, he's my Lord. God, I've been trying to do this in my own strength, but your word teaches me I need your spirit to be in control. I need your spirit to direct my steps. So maybe you prayed a simple prayer. God, I can't do this without you. To which God said, finally. Would you not work in me? You filled me, now will will you use me? Will you make me more like Jesus in power? Peace. Then the next day, you didn't feel it. Come on now. Why? Because it's a daily surrender, isn't it? Matter of fact, can I be honest? Sometimes it's a multitude of surrenders in a given day. Ever been there? Like I start off every morning saying, I'm yours. And then sometimes an hour later, I go, Lord, I'm sorry. I took myself back. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm yours. I'm yours. And he's faithful to give us what we need. He's faithful to rain down on us that which our soul desperately desires. The hope for believers is found first by the Holy Spirit's indwelling, but continues as we rely on him to guide us in our thoughts and our words and our deeds. I I ask you, have you been set ablaze? I like how E. Stanley Jones writes of the apostles' transformation. He says, after Pentecost, there's a quality and power in their witness that had not been there before. It It was a byproduct. The witness they gave was a result of the witness they received. The witness was a sense of God in immediate presence. God is with us. Remember Jesus, I'll never leave you or forsake you. How can he say that? Because the spirit of Christ resides in the life of a believer. In power. In power. Are you in Christ walking in the spirit? The world may not know it, but their deepest desire is for genuine life in Jesus Christ. Christ's church is, 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 
It's the plan of God to, to bear this witness to the world, to be able to share it so that they can see it and hear it and respond. In a very real sense, the world is expectant of something. They don't know what it is, but they know there's more out there. And it's Jesus. It's Jesus. And we, through the power of the Spirit, are to take their, uh, that message to them. Take it to them. Are you part of the movement set ablaze at Pentecost nearly 2,000 years ago? In other words, have you come to faith in Christ? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, God so loved you, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Have you come to faith in Christ? And if you've come to faith in Christ, are you walking in the spirit in faith? Romans 12, 1 and 2, right? We looked at it about a month and a half ago. Romans 12, 1 and 2. You probably remember it, right? What we present ourselves to God is what? A living sacrifice. And when we do that, we're yours, God. What does he say in Romans 12, 2? Therefore, we won't be conformed to the pattern of the world, but transformed by the renewing of the mind. I've come across many a Christian that says, you know what? Christianity just didn't work for me. And I've had to ask them, well, have you surrendered yourself to the Spirit's leading in your life? Because many a believer, let's just be honest, comes to Christ for salvation, then says, God, I want you to bless me the way I was. Come on. The Lord says, no, it's an if-then, just like it was an if-then with Joel to the people of Israel, right? If you repent, if you surrender, then I will shower my blessings upon you. By the way, it doesn't mean it'll make you earthly rich. He's going to give you something much better than that. Are you walking in the spirit empowered, empowered to share your faith? Church, I, I can't be any clearer than this. This is the hope, not just for our own life, but for our marriages and our families and our neighborhoods and our schools and, and, and our workplaces, our region, our nation. Revival starts with me. It starts with you. And by the power of the spirit, it reverberates throughout our culture. Things won't change until we change. Things won't change until we change together, and things won't change until we literally allow the Spirit of God to work in our life in such a way that others say, what is going on? I need that. And if you think it's not possible, I want to tell you this is a gospel that took a doubter and a person who turned his back on Christ by the name of Peter and transformed him into quite the preacher. It's the gospel who took a man by the name of, of Saul, we'll know him as Paul, who was persecuting and killing Christians and make him an apostle of Jesus Christ. I don't know what you've done or how, how little you see yourself in the view of the world. God says, I have put dynamite power inside you as a believer. Don't believe what the world says. Don't believe what you may even think of yourself. Believe what God says about you. He's always right. He says, you are worth my son dying for you. You are worth me putting my spirit in you. You have the power of heaven to not just get through the day, but flourish. Flourish. If you haven't come to Christ, won't you? If you've come to Christ, won't you today say, once again, Lord, I will walk in the spirit. Lead me. Lead me, I pray. That's the movement we've been ushered into that Jesus ignited 2,000 years ago and still burns bright today. Let's pray.
Father, it's amazing to me that this one amazing gift, this, this one promise that you give us in Scripture has these two powerful components. That when we enter into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, we receive Jesus as the Savior and Lord of our life, that we're justified, we're made right with God, that, that heaven is our future. But we also receive the gift of your Spirit that indwells us. And it's your Spirit working in us that allows us to, to walk like believers, to receive the peace you have for us and to walk in the power you have for us, to get, gain the wisdom you have for us. And Lord, it's a journey. It's a journey. It begins the day we say yes to you and, and we grow and we grow and we grow. And it's not uh, just an uphill uh, growth. It's, it's, it's one that sometimes zigs and zags, but you're faithful to us. And I thank you for that. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who's yet to receive you as Savior and Lord, that in the quietness of their heart they do so. They thank you for dying for our sins and being resurrected for their salvation. Lord, I pray for all of us who have made that decision that we once again would affirm that you're Lord of our life. But it's not by our strength or power, it's by your might, Lord God, that we're able to live victoriously in you. Thank you for the true promises of your word. Thank you for the example in, in, in Scripture of this your spirit's power in the life of believers. May we experience that together. Not just for our sake, but for the sake of every single person outside the walls of this building, outside the walls of wherever we're, we're, we're participating online of this service, outside the walls of Hopewell. That all will know your love, that all will know your salvation, that all will be able to walk in your power. Oh, rain down upon us, I pray, Lord God. In Jesus' name. Amen.